king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is the word of the Lord. Um, before we pray, well, I want to invite children to Children's Church. And before we pray, I want to just give a, a brief announcement so you'll understand what I'm praying for. Um, on Wednesday afternoon at Asbury uh, University in Kentucky, they were doing the normal uh, chapel service. And when the chapel service ended Wednesday afternoon, nobody left. The people just kept praying and singing, confessing their sins, and it kept going and going and growing and growing. And the number of people kept coming in, and it's still been going on to this day. And, and this is possibly a mark of revival. Um, in, the 19, in 1970, a similar thing happened in Asbury, and it turned into a revival that spread across the land. And so I want to pray for that, and I just wanted the, you to understand what is going on uh, so that it wouldn't be kind of an announcement in the middle of the prayer. Um, so with that, let's open with a word of prayer. Gracious Lord, we're grateful that you do love us, that you care for us, that you are our king, and Lord, that you are our ruler. Uh, thank you for your grace to us. Father, I pray that what is going on at Asbury University right now, Lord, may this be the spark, the beginning of a revival that you bring to our land. Lord, it's been my desire for a long time that you would send revival. I can't do anything about it. All I can do is cry out to you. And Lord, we pray that with the injury that um, Damar Hamlin suffered and the, the public prayer and the public pronunciations of your goodness and, and who you really are, and now this happening at Asbury, Lord, I just pray that this would be the beginning of something stirring in our nation. Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit upon our, our country? But Lord, as I've wisely been reminded recently, Lord, start with me. Break my heart. Lead me to, to confess my sins, to turn away from them and to turn to you. And Lord, spread that throughout our church. And then Lord, would you spread that throughout the Antelope Valley? Would you draw many people to see the glory and the beauty of who Jesus Christ is? Have mercy on us, we pray. Lord, we don't deserve another revival, but it is within your power to do it. And so we call on you, please have mercy on us. Lord, we also wanna pray for uh, the people of Syria and Libya or in uh, Turkey who have suffered a, a tremendous earthquake. Uh, Lord, one of the, the, the roughest kind, the slipping of two plates against each other. Um, Lord, the damage is spread across a large area and the casualties are, are climbing. And Lord, I just pray that you would have mercy in those countries, especially Syria, who's already so war-torn and, and, and disorganized. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, your church in those areas would be responding with the gospel love of Jesus Christ, tending to the, the, um, the wounded, um, rescuing those who are trapped. Uh, providing material relief, relief for, uh, for all involved, but also, Lord, pronouncing the hope of Jesus Christ in the midst of all of that. So have mercy on them as well. And so, Lord, now as we turn to your word, I pray that you would help us to see what it is that, that you have for us this morning. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us clearly and powerfully through your word? Conform our hearts and minds to the image of Jesus Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. There was a Canadian tech company um, in uh, 1998, they started up, it was called Research in Motion, or RIM for short. Um, they started out pretty small, they got a contract with Rogers Communication, that's the big telecom in Canada. And what they did is they developed digital communication devices. And one of their biggest things was they developed a two-way pager. So for you who are younger than me, a pager 
was a little block you put on your belt and, and people could call a number and it would buzz and say what phone number it came from. And so then you would call back. But they developed one that could send messages and it had a keyboard and you could send messages back. And so they began to grow. Well, eventually RIM became a $20 billion company, huge. Their growth was so exponential. At one point, they were, they were increasing by 25% each quarter. That means they doubled the size of the company in a year. It was gigantic. What made RIM so successful? The little device you may have heard of called the BlackBerry. In the early 2000s, if you were in business, you either had a BlackBerry or you wanted a BlackBerry. They were just so super successful. What made them so successful? There were two things that I think made them really successful. First of all, they engineered this device to work on very limited bandwidth. Bandwidth is how much data you can send in a unit of time. Back in the early 2000s, bandwidth was at a premium. There was hardly any. So they engineered this device to function within that narrow bandwidth. And that made it usable. But the other thing they did was revolutionary. They included an arched keyboard that you could use your thumbs on. Now, it made the device fatter than uh, the old flip phones of the day, but it also made it useful. And so if you were a business executive, it was a badge of honor if you had a, a, a BlackBerry strapped to your hip. They dominated. For a period of time, they, they had almost 50% market share of the smartphones. It was giant. And then in 2007, Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone and everything changed. The iPhone did something radically different. It didn't have a keyboard. It didn't have anything. It had one button on the front and it changed the, the, uh, the uh, smartphone market. BlackBerry was so successful at that time, they were, they were expanding into markets in India and Asia, Russia, and, and they were going global and things were just booming. They were too big and too entrenched to make any kind of gigantic changes. In other words, they were so successful, they were kind of locked into their business model. What eventually happened was the iPhone began to take over more and more of their market share. And BlackBerry tried to change and tried to do some things different. I think the, the, for me, the death knell, the signal that they were done was when they introduced the BlackBerry Storm. What the BlackBerry Storm was, was they had a big touch screen on it. And so you could move your finger around, but they didn't really change the paradigm of the phone, they, the way it operated. And the worst thing was when you clicked, you know, like on an iPhone, you just tap the screen. With the Storm, you had the entire screen was the button. You had to click the entire stupid button. And it just never made it. It was, it was buggy. They didn't update the operating system at all. And uh, by 2014, they were done. A Chinese company bought BlackBerry, uh, scaled them down to almost nothing. Now BlackBerry still exists, but they do security software. They're not doing smartphones or any of that anymore. So what happened? Well, they became a victim of their own success. They became so big and so powerful that they were focused on making the absolute best BlackBerry you possibly could. So when Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone and changed what a smartphone was, they weren't able to keep up. They were trapped by their own success. And so they're, they're, they're kind of the, for me, the paradigm or the epitome of that phrase, nothing fails like success. You can, you can get too good at something and then just die. Uh, so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to see this story of Saul, this next, this next stage in Saul's uh, uh, evolution as the king of Israel. And what we're going to see is nothing fails like success. But in the end, we're going to have this good news that God redeems even our successful failures. So here we go. Let's take a look at what happens. So what's going on is 
Saul is, uh, has been anointed privately by Samuel as the king of Israel. And then he was uh, brought out and, and paraded before the people and, and they, they announced him to be the king of Israel. And now here's the next step in that. Um, it starts though, not with Saul, but, but often uh, Jabesh Gilead and Nahash, the Ammonite king is gonna attack them. And uh, they, they know that they're in trouble. Uh, so they just say, hey, we'll make a treaty with you. Just let's, let's have a, a, a covenant and, and we'll just make it all better. And so, Jabe, or so uh, Nahash rather says, uh, one condition, I'm going to gouge out your right eye of everybody. It's, it's cruel, isn't it? That's horrible. And, and there was tactical reasons for that too, because they held the shield with, the right, with their left hand so that would cover their left eye. If they didn't have a right eye, they wouldn't be able to fight effectively. Now, it sounds horrible, and it is, and it should be. Um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in the history of the uh, Wars of the Jews written by Josephus, uh, there's some additional information in there. It may, not, may or may not be true, but it says that he had gone through and terrorized um, other parts of Israel and, and grouched out eyes. And Jabesh Gilead was kind of the last one. So the people are rightly afraid. Why didn't they put up a fight? Because they were rightly terrified of this guy. He's been romping around, killing all kinds of people, just taking over territories. So they ask him, this is, the this is the covenant we want to make. Just give us a break and we will serve you. We will do whatever you want, but don't kill us. And so when he, he tells them, all right, we're going to lose, you're going to lose an eye. That's what it's going to cost you. They ask him, well, give us seven days. Now, why on earth would, would Nahash agree to a seven-day respite? Why would he say, we're going to take a break for seven days? and let you regroup and everything. I think what it is, is it paints a picture of this guy. Not only is he cruel, not only is he a, a vicious uh, dictator, but he's also full of himself. He thinks that he is so invincible that he's going to give Jabesh Gilead time. They're going to send messengers throughout Israel, and there's no way in the universe anybody's going to come out against him. So he just goes, yeah, go for it. Why? Because he said he wanted to bring disgrace on all of Israel, not just Jabesh Gilead. He wants to he wants to make the whole nation look terrible. So yeah, you go take your seven days. And when they don't show up, I'm going to come in and, and take you out anyway. So that's kind of the picture. So they send this, the messengers out. They, they send them throughout all of Israel. And it says, when the messengers came to uh, Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people and all the people wept. So it, it, they're, they're mentioning Gibeah, but they want to be specific. This is Gibeah where Saul lived. Saul was supposed to be the king, but he's not acting like a king yet. He's not there. So they come in and they don't look for Saul, say, where's our king? We have to tell him what's happening. They announce it to the people and the people weep. So then what happens next? Well, then Saul is coming in from the field behind the oxen. He's been working. He's been out plowing the field with the oxen. And when he comes in, he hears the, the cries of the people and he says, what's wrong? What's going on? And they tell him what happened. And then in verse six, it says, and the spirit of the God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and he was, his anger was greatly kindled. He hears what, the, what Nahash is gonna do to Jabesh Gilead and he's just irate. So he kills the oxen, a yoke of oxen is two. So he took these two oxen and cut them up and sent them throughout Israel. And he said, if you don't come out for war, may this happen to your oxen. It was a threat. He wanted them to know this is not fooling around. You get out here, we're going to war. And so when the people gathered, verse 8, it says they mustered at Bezek, and the people of Israel were 300,000 men of Judah and uh, uh, 300,000 of Israel and 30,000 of Judah. That number seems high. That, that seems like way too many people. 
so one of the theories here is it was 300 thousands. So a thousand was a technical term for a military unit, kind of like you've, you've heard of a centurion, a Roman centurion. A centurion was in charge of a century, a Roman century. Now, century means 100, and so originally a century was 100 troops. So a centurion would have a, a group of 100 troops under him. Eventually, century became 60 people. So it, it was a technical term for a military unit, not the number of people in the unit. So that's the theory here is, is we hear in the Old Testament quite a bit, uh, the, the commanders of their uh, hundreds and the commanders of their thousands. Um, it might not be the specific number of people that are in the unit, but the commanders of these large military units. So one theory is it's 300 groups of thousands. So that may be, you know, 30,000 or so. It's still a large army, but it's not 300,000. It just seems too much. So they gathered together and they said, um, they sent messengers. The messengers came to them. They send them back. Tomorrow by this time, when the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. Saul is promising them, we're coming for you. Hang on. We'll be there tomorrow. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do to us whatever seems good. In English, that seems pretty straightforward. The Hebrew is actually a little bit more clever. It doesn't say in Hebrew, we will give ourselves up to you. It says we will come out to you. Now, what does it mean? We will come out to you. It could be you know, hands up, uh, white flag, we're ready to give up. It could also be we're coming to get you. We're coming out in battle. And it says also, and you may do what seems good. In other words, give it your best shot, buddy. Now, Nahash is so full of himself. He's so sure that he's the man that all he can hear is, oh, good, they're giving up. So tomorrow we're going to take them out. But the, the message was actually pretty cleverly worded. Um, they weren't lying necessarily, but they weren't giving him the whole story. And so the next day, Saul put the people into three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. So what probably happened, if you, if you kind of line up the timeline here, they probably marched all night from Bezek to uh, Jabesh Gilead and happened on them right as the sun is coming up, marched into the camp and took them out. And when they came into the camp, they struck them down until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them together, they couldn't form another cohesive military unit. They were done. This was a, a gigantic, hugely successful battle. This is, this is great news. So Saul routed them just as he had anticipated. So the story ends. Then the people said to Samuel, who is it who said, shall Saul rule over us? So you remember last week, as uh, Saul has been anointed king, he's pronounced king. The people announce him as king. And he, some men of stout heart follow him home. But some others said, who's this guy? And Saul just held his peace. He didn't say anything. He went home. And so here, now the people are like, yeah, wait a minute. Who said that? But Saul acts in the first instance in really a kingly kind of fashion. He says, nobody's dying today, you guys. God has worked salvation. Just let it go. It's, it's okay. And so then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. What do they mean by renew the kingdom? Um, the commentators were all over the, the map on this. Um, was Samuel saying, we're going to renew the kingdom? In other words, God's kingdom, we're going to put God back in charge. Because remember when God told Samuel, hey, go anoint a king, he was pretty upset. And God said, don't worry, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. So maybe as Samuel is saying, well, 
let's go back and put God back in charge because he gave us salvation. That seems highly unlikely because what happens in chapter 12 is Saul. Saul is king. So that doesn't seem like it. So maybe he's saying, let's renew the kingdom of Saul. But why would that be? The kingdom hasn't really ever nude. So why would it renew? It's just getting started. So I'm not sure exactly what's going on. My best take on that is what Saul is saying is we started the process of making, or what Samuel is saying is we started the process of making Saul king. Let's go to Gilgal and finish that. Let, let's put him on the throne. Um, even though Samuel didn't want to have a king in Israel, even though he felt that was a bad idea, God had told him, you go anoint a king for them. You give them what they're asking for. And so that maybe is what Saul or Samuel is doing is saying, okay, let's do this. Let's go ahead and finish it. And so all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul the king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Those peace offerings, they were not whole burnt offerings. They were parts of the, the um, animals that were burnt, and then the rest were feasted on. So this was a big, huge party. This is, this is how it all begins. Saul succeeded. Remember what we've been saying this whole time with Saul. If he, we know the story. We know what happens next because we've read this before. But if you're in Israel at this time, if you're reading this for the first time, you're like, is he going to be a good king or a bad king? Is he a good guy? What are you thinking today after chapter 11? <laughs> the guy's a success. He did great. What a wonderful king. This is going to be wonderful for them. It looks good at this point. But like I said, with Rim, nothing fails like success. And what you have to ask is what succeeded here? What was actually the people's goal? When you read this a little more carefully, I, th I think what you pick up is the author was very careful in how he told the story. So he brings things out and brings them to the front as he's explaining it. And then other things he just glosses over. So like the messengers coming from Jabesh Gilead and going through all of Israel, nothing about that. Just when they showed up at Gibeah of Saul. He, he's, he's not, he's saying, don't worry about that part. I'm focusing here. What I think he's doing is he's painting this picture of the story and it's intentionally, or it's built to intentionally remind us of the time of the judges. It's, it's intentionally taking us back to the time of judges. And I say that because Jabesh Gilead figures prominently in the last three chapters of judges. It's an important city. Same thing with uh, Gibeah. They're both very important in judges. In, in judges, the Ammonites show up. And Jephthah just wipes him out. He, he just routes him again. So it's a similar story like that. Um, the elders of Jabesh didn't go to the king. They called on the nation to save them. In other words, they're still acting like they're under a judge. They didn't act like they were under a king. When God appointed a judge in the book of Judges, almost always it says the spirit of the Lord came upon them. But that particular word rushed upon them that happens three times with Samson. So that, that ties in, Samson's toward the end of the book of Judges. So I think our author is, saying, is trying to get us to see Saul as a judge. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon Saul and he cut up the oxen, he cut him in two. The spirit of the Lord rushed on Samson and he tore a lion in half. He struck down 30 men and the ropes that were binding him fell off. So it's a similar kind of picture of the, the work of the Holy Spirit falling on this man. And then finally, in that gruesome end of the book of Judges, the Levite cuts up his dead concubine and sends her pieces all throughout Israel. And in this story, Saul cuts up some oxen and sends the pieces all through Israel. It's, it's supposed to remind us of the book of Judges. 
That's where we're supposed to go with this. So perhaps what's happening here is God is being exactly who he always is. He's being faithful and doing exactly what he had done all through the book of Judges. He, the people remember, remember why they said they wanted a king? Samuel, you're old. Your, your sons are just complete putzes. There's no hope for us in the future. There's no, nothing in the, in the future that we can see that's going to happen. And God steps up and goes, I can raise up another judge. But you're demanding a king. You don't want somebody temporarily to fill, the, fill this, this uh, position to lead you out and to deliver you. You want somebody on a throne. And so the way he reacts to them is he says, look, I just raised Saul up as if he was a judge. And look what he did. Succeeded brilliantly. He, he did exactly what he was going to do. But back in chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, this is how the people said it. They said, um, they refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. And God said, anoint them a king. They, how does the story end? They anointed Saul king. They proclaimed to be king. There shall be a king over us, that we may also be like the nations. This is the first time a foreign king is mentioned, and it's the king of Ammon. And now the people want to be like that. And this guy's a terror. He's horrible. They said, no, there shall be a king over us that we may also be like the nations. We want to be just like that. And that our king, our king may judge us. I think it's, that's almost ironic that they've said, we want a king who will judge us. God raises up Saul as if he's a judge. And what's he do in the end? Nobody dies today, you guys. That's, that's inappropriate. He judges Israel. He not only led him in victorious battle, but he judged me. He said, no, we're not going to execute anybody today. And then finally, and go out before us and fight our battles. And that's exactly what happened. So they got what they were looking for. They wanted a king. They got a king, just like the nations. God, on the, mean, on the other hand, is saying, look, I'm raising up another judge. I can do this again and again and again. But the people won't hear it. They've, they've decided that what they want is they want a king. In other words, they have successfully failed. They set their goal on what on one thing, we want a king, and they got a king. Had they said, our problem is Samuel's old and about to die, his sons are unworthy, and then look to God, and God raised up another judge, they go, oh, he's good, he's faithful. They missed the, they missed the mark. Just like Rim with the Blackberry built the best Blackberry possible. But then the whole paradigm of what a smartphone was changed and they couldn't respond. The same thing happens here. They, they wanted something, they succeeded at getting it, and it was the wrong thing. It's, it's, it's a rough position to be in. So how do you succeed, uh, succeed at failing or fail at succeeding, or however that fits together? Well, here's an, a contemporary example I want to offer you. Church planting. Now, I'm a big fan of church planting. I took two, two classes that were electives in seminary on church planting. I did a field ed. That's, that's kind of not a class, but it's work you have to do. I did a field ed with the church planning director for our district, and I had to develop an annotated biography or um, yeah, annotated bibliography of church planting books. I didn't read them cover to cover, but I looked through tons of church planting books. So I, I love church planting, but I saw something in the church planting literature, in the, in the kind of mindset that I thought is a great example, unfortunately, of this. Now, when I say this, I want to be careful. I'm not saying every church plant is a failure or a successful failure, nor am I saying anybody who follows this model is a successful failure. 
but I want to explain a model for church planting that can be a successful failure. And it goes like this. To do, and I've heard this, I've been on a conference call and I heard somebody explain this, articulate this as their church planting model. We want to plant a church in this specific area, in this, this bigger area. So what we did is we looked at the demographics and we looked where they're building new homes and we watched where people were moving into the area where the population was growing. And we said, that's where we're going to plant a church. And so what they did is they got to that area and as new families are moving in, they begin to connect with people and they have a Bible study and then it grows. And then eventually they get enough people together and they get somebody in charge of children's ministry and they get a killer rock band for the music and they have the preacher who's going to preach and they get all of this stuff together. They do two or three cold opens where they're not announcing it, but they're, they're running through the whole program to make sure it works. And then they launch on an Easter Sunday, they launch and it's a big event and it's huge. And the goal here is we want to be a self-sustaining church with at least 200 people in regular attendance in two years. And they do it. And we're supposed to applaud. Can I ask you a question? What was missing from that whole description, that whole game plan for church planting? God. There's, they weren't relying on God to do this. They had a strategy and they had a plan. What they wound up doing was getting what we call transfer growth. New Christians move into the area, they're disconnected, they find a church, it's got some stuff for their kids, they got something going on, they plug in, and they're attending. That's called a successful church plant. But I'll tell you what, in the other part of the literature I read, one of the phrases I heard over and over again is the way to reach an area is not through existing church revitalization, but through church planting. Start new churches in the area and you will reach the, the area. You can fail successfully by not reaching the area, by not converting anybody, by not bringing the gospel to anybody, but just gathering Christians who are moving into the area. That's what I mean by a, failure, a successful failure. So what would I say is a successful church plant? I would say a church plant is successful if you reach your community that you're planted in, even if you never get to 200 people. If you only get to the place where you're basically hardly staying alive, but you're reaching new people, you'll have transfer, people will come, they're, they're sick of the old church and they're looking for a new one. But I think a successful church plant is one that's engaging the community and bringing people to know Jesus Christ. The other thing that's missing, I think, from that other model is what is the church's mission? What are we called to do? We are called to make disciples, not rearrange disciples, not gather disciples, make disciples. Take somebody who is not currently a disciple, bring them to know who Jesus Christ is and lead them in discipleship and cause them to grow. To take Christians who are disciples and help them to grow in discipleship. That's what we're called to do. So that's what I mean. You can have a church model that, was, that will fail successfully. It will be viable in two years. It will grow to 200, maybe 300, maybe 500 and yet have very little impact on, the, on the, the, um, the neighborhood around them. We're in danger of, fail, of successfully failing, of making it in a way that, that's not good. So that's, that's a big picture thing. So if we do a church plant from here, which I would love to, and this revival is really happening, maybe we need to, um, we're gonna go at it in a slightly different way than you, know, you gotta be viable in two years. Um, but what about on a personal level? What about you and I? How can we successfully fail? Well, if you're a Christian, then you are called to follow your master. You're called to be just like Jesus. Jesus is the one that we're modeling ourselves after. 
We heard in, in Romans 8, you were predestined to be conformed to his image. So for us to succeed, what we want to see is we want to see ourselves be more like Jesus. So you could be the most well-known and popular and, and biggest Christian in the room. And that would fail successfully. You could actually achieve that. You could be the big person on campus and fail miserably. Instead, what we have to do is we have to adopt the mindset of the kingdom. We have, to, we have to say, how does Jesus teach us to think about what success is? And it's upside down. It is not what the world expects. It is exactly inverted. So we hear things like Paul saying, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. How do, you, how do you become powerful in the kingdom? Become weak. And I'll tell you, I've heard, I'll even name him, Eric Metaxas, Christian author. I've heard him say, look, we tried turning the other cheek. It doesn't work. We've got to go for political power or we're going to get decimated. That is the exact opposite of what the kingdom is. God's power is made strong in your weakness. Be weak. Jesus calls his disciples and said to them, this is from Mark chapter 10, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great, great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. I, I can think of two big Christian leaders right off the top of my head who did that exact same thing. They lorded it over their congregations. Mark Driscoll, when he was at Mars Hill, he was large and in charge. He even looked one guy in the eye and said, I'm kind of a big deal. He, and he was abusive to his people. His people were terrified of him. The other one tragically was CJ Mahaney from, um, from uh, Sovereign Grace Ministries. He wrote a book on humility. <laughs> this breaks my heart. He was abusive. He was shutting people down when, when stories of sexual abuse in his denomination rose. He cut them out. That's the exact opposite. Seeking power in a congregation is not the kingdom mindset. Matthew chapter 5 is loaded with this stuff. For example, uh, verses 43 through 45, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. So people are your enemies. It's not just people you don't like, actually your enemies. What Jesus says is pray for them, love them. Now, believe me, um, the yeah, but who's my neighbor trick has been tried. Jesus kind of shut that down. It was your enemies are your neighbors, love them. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another. Not coming in and saying, you have to do it my way. I prefer this, and you have to do it like that. And then the last one I just want to bring up, I could keep going. I could keep showing you this, this kingdom mindset from the New Testament. Here's, here's one I think is the best one, because what you might be asking yourself at this point is, I get it. I don't know how to do that. My enemy, I don't love my enemy. Submitting to these people, have you met them, Tim? I don't want to submit to some of these folks. How am I supposed to do that? Paul doesn't leave us guessing. Philippians chapter uh, 2, he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, 
but in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You want this mindset? It is yours in Christ Jesus. It is yours. You can have this. Have this mindset, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. How can I submit to this other person when I really genuinely don't like them? Jesus did so much more than that. He existed in the form of God. He was the eternally begotten son of God, surrounded with glory, myriads of angels crying out his holiness. And what did he do? He added to that a human nature, and not just any human nature, the human nature in the form of a servant, the lowliest. This is your mind in Christ. It's available to you. This is offered to us. So if we set our goal on being the greatest, most significant, the most important Christian around, you are in grave danger of actually succeeding in that. That's a horrible place to be, to have everybody look up to you and say, oh, what a wonderful person you are. You would rather have them look at you and go, wow, the Lord has really done a lot in this guy. This lady is incredible. Jesus has really worked in them and have that focus off to somebody else and not be mad that somebody else gets credit for it. Be glad of that. So here in the congregation, we want to encourage you to be last. We, we want to encourage you to think of others as more important than yourself, to seek the welfare of the other. So in our congregation, in our context, I want to ask you to serve Trinity with that kind of a mindset. The number one thing that came to my mind, the first thing I wrote down is Kathy Stromberg has been doing the children's ministry, the children's church for a very long time. She would love to be able to sit into a service with her husband. She needs somebody else to, to step up to her and say, Kathy, show me what you do in children's church. I'll take it for you next week. Think of somebody else as more important than yourself. How can I serve? How can I empty myself? I want to be the greatest in the kingdom. So Jesus doesn't say, don't ever think to be greatest. He says, you want to be greatest? Let me show you how to be greatest. Be the least. Serve others. Take Kathy's place once in a while. She would love that. That would be such a blessing to her. And I have it on good authority. She would let you. I don't think she'd fight that too much. Volunteer to work the soundboard. <laughs> it's funny, I wrote this down and we had this big soundboard meltdown this morning, but volunteer to learn the soundboard and work the media booth. We need help in that. Volunteer to help with singing if you have a voice. Participate that with that. Here's one that you may not think of because we don't see it very often. Visit Joanne Sadler. She's been a member of the congregation since before and Lisa and I came here the very first time. They've been coming faithfully for a long time. Because of her ill health, she can't come. Go visit her. Even if you don't know her, you know what? She's very easy to talk to. She's very good at, at conversation, just polite conversation. Call her and say, hey, can I bring you dinner? Can I bring you some lunch sometime? Think of Joanne as more important than you. Go out of your way to greet visitors. This is hard for us because we're all tend to be more engineer thoughty kinds. And so we tend to look at our shoes, but be uncomfortable and greet somebody. Don't worry if you say dorky things, 
Uh, believe me, I do it. I know how to do this. <laughs> I can be a complete dork, but go out of your way to welcome them. Just, hi, how you doing? Glad to, glad to meet you. Glad you came. Um, write a missionary. Uh, I have on good authority that a, a certain Stromberg missionary family would enjoy letters from you. Um, you could write um, uh, Heather, and uh, I'm drawing a blank on her last name. Heather and Troy Farrell, yes. Uh, they would love to hear from you. Write a missionary. Just write him a letter of encouragement. It doesn't have to be uh, Paul's epistle to the Romans, that kind of level of writings. It, it could be something as simple as, hey, how are you doing? That's it. That's, it's just encouraging to get a letter. And the last one I'm hesitant to say because we don't really have this problem here, I don't think. Don't outsource your obedience. What I mean is, if you see something missing or wrong in the church, don't look and go, Tim should do that. Dan Stromberg ought to fix that. Don't outsource your obedience. I can't do everything. I'm not good at everything. I'm barely good at what I'm good at. Maybe that's some, the Lord calling you to do something. Think of others as more important than yourselves and then serve that way. To serve here at Trinity. That's the immediate context of the New Testament is, is largely within our context. Serve here. But there's more to it. You have to serve your community as well. When, when Jesus was asked, who's my neighbor? His answer was not the Levite or the priest. It was the Samaritan. The Samaritans were icky. They were compromised Jews. They were mixed marriages. They had a broken history. And Jesus said, that person is your neighbor, not the one in your congregation, not the one in your synagogue, but that thing you would never have anything to do with. That's your neighbor. So we have to reach out and also serve our community. So how can you, how can you think of others as more important than yourselves? How can you adopt that, that kingdom mindset and succeed as a good disciple? Volunteer at CareNet or Grace Resources. Two ministries I'm familiar with. And I just condemned myself because I have gone for training at CareNet. I have the application and I have not taken the next steps and said, okay, I will work at CareNet counseling men on certain nights. And now I'm convicted and I'm guilty and I'm going to have to go this week. It's going to be a priority to call them and say, hey, I can help. What can I do? Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate you guys helping me on that. Uh, be a good neighbor. Who is your neighbor? Do you know your neighbor? Have you talked to him? And you don't have to have like, you know, in-depth, you know, here's my whole family history kind of stuff, just waving across the way. But do you know who your neighbor is? I don't. Actually, it's, I have an excuse. You want, I'm not going to offer my excuse. I have a real excuse, though. Um, one of my favorite things is be nice. Do you know how, how incredible it is to be nice to somebody? Just being pleasant, when, even when they're grumpy and quiet and they don't want to communicate, just being nice. As long as it's not cheesy and over the top that can actually begin to break down barriers and, and welcome people. In America, our biggest problem is isolation. Social media has caused us to retract into these little tiny bubbles and then pandemics and shutdowns didn't help at all. We are terribly lonely, but we're terrified. And so if you say hi to somebody and you smile and you nod and they just kind of turn away, it may not be that, they, that you have bad breath. It might just be they're terrified to reach out and it might take a couple of times. So be nice. Be generous with your money, time, and attention is what that boils down to. And then anybody could do that. The part that makes this a Christian thing, a kingdom mindset, is be honest but not pushy about your faith. 
in, in the Saturday morning class I teach, I routinely say, well, at church, I did this on this computer. They know who I am. They know that I'm a preacher. They know I'm a pastor. I, I told them, hey, I just went to a theology conference last week, and I was at my seminary. It was great to be back there. But I'm not pushy. I'm not saying, and therefore, I don't take half the class to present the gospel. It just is honestly who I am. So be honest and share your faith with people when it's appropriate. That's how you love your neighbor as yourself. That's what makes it a Christian way of doing it instead of just a, you know, a good neighbor kind of thing. So the problem here is we don't want to succeed at failure. We don't want to be this certain type of person we think we are and say that has nothing to do. It's disconnected from the kingdom of Christ. We want to be good and faithful ministers of Christ's covenant. That's what we're called to do. So make sure as you're evaluating your life and thinking, how am I doing? How, you know, what can I improve on? Where can I, where can I focus a little bit more? Make sure you set your goal on the right thing or you're going to be Blackberry. Gone. Nothing. Because you succeeded in a place that you weren't supposed to succeed in. We're going to see this happen with Saul. This one commentator, it just about made me weep, said this is the high point of Saul's career came out of the gate, peaked early, and just downhill from the rest of the way. It's tragic. Let's not do that. Let's set our goals in the right places. And it's not just Saul. This is Israel with him. All the people wanted Saul to be king because they set their goals. They set their priorities in the wrong place. So for kingdom mindset, bathe your brain in the New Testament. And don't just get the ideas. Look for obedience. How can I do this? What is God calling me to do in this thing? even when it's really seriously hard. Pray, ask him, Lord, I, I want to be obedient, but make sure your brain is recalibrated to a kingdom mindset or you're going to fail successfully. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for the warning you give us in Saul. And Lord, the thing that I love the most is Saul was not the end of the story. Saul was not the, the completion of the book of Samuel or the book of Kings. But Lord, you redeemed Israel's fail, failing success or successful failure because you eventually brought them David, the king after your own heart. So Lord, when we struggle, when we try, when we long for the wrong things, Lord, would you redeem even our, our successful failures? Would you, would you draw us back to that kingdom mindset that we can have in Jesus Christ? It's ours in him. Lead us to walk in those ways, to be losers, to be weak, to be failures in the eyes of the world, because we know the kingdom is upside down. That we will be first if we're last. So Lord, help us to do that well. Lord, Holy Spirit, seal us for that purpose, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.